Well, good morning again. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll be back in Mark's gospel again. Starting in verse 24. A couple of years ago, my family got a new pet. He's a nine and a half pound Shetland sheepdog. He's cute, little, and fluffy, mostly hair, and a little bit of yap. Uh, he's Noah's little buddy and Artina's shadow. His name is Benny, which is short for Benaiah, one of David's mighty men. He may have grown into his paws, but he hasn't grown into his name yet. One place you can always find Benny is under the table during dinner time. And you probably know why he's there. But let me tell you, he doesn't sit by my feet waiting for a handout from me. Uh, he knows that he's got better odds of getting blood from a turnip than getting my compassion to overflow to giving him table scraps. Uh, no, he's not sitting there waiting for me. He, he's got a different target. He set his hope elsewhere. Uh, he generally, generally sits right there by Noah's feet. And when we have rice with our meals, rice rains down from Noah's plate to bless the eager Benny sitting beneath. And it's not just rice. Uh, Benny has enjoyed many meals due to Noah's unintentional generosity. You know, this is just a fact of life. I know that my family's not alone in this. Anybody's got indoor dogs probably can relate. Uh, this is just a, a simple fact of life. But uh, in our text this morning, we see that this dynamic plays heavy into our text. Uh, and it's not just a story about opportunistic pets. Uh, it's actually going to be a pointer to God's plan of salvation. It's going to be a, a, a picture of what God is going to do in our world. And so let's read along in, in Mark chapter 7 and see what Jesus does with us. Mark 7, verse 24, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great plan of salvation. Lord, thank you that you have not only fed the children, but you have fed us all. Lord, thank you that the, the food of this gospel has come to us. And we pray that you would help us to delight in your kindness to us. And pray that you would stir our hearts as we look into your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the key things this text is inviting us to this morning is to believe on Jesus with confidence that all people who seek him will be received. And as we work through this text, we want to consider the problem, the priority, and the parable. Just so nobody forgets that I had a, a Baptist upbringing in the faith, I've got a sermon with three points that all begin with P. You know, that's, that's how we do it. We've got the problem, the priority, and the parable. 
Let's look at the problem first here. Uh, I bet we're going to see the problem that Jesus is confronted with, uh, but first we want to look into the situation that brought Jesus to this place. Um, thus far in Mark chapter 7, uh, we've seen that Jesus is once again engaged in conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, they're back at it again. Um, they've challenged him on the matter of why his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Um, they're they're uh, trying to give Jesus a ticket here, a moral uh, reprimand. And he, in turn, rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes for adhering to the tradition of the elders and forsaking the word of God. He calls them hypocrites. They're, they're people who worship God with their mouths only while their heart is far away. Uh, two weeks ago, when we were here last, uh, we saw what Jesus went on to teach about the human heart. And you know, it's, it's not food that defiles the heart. It's not wash, eating with unwashed hands that defiles the heart. It's actually the heart that defiles a person. We are defiled from within, not from without, Jesus says. And after this conflict, Jesus leaves Galilee. He's going to return back in chapter 8, uh, back to Galilee for one last tour of duty. Uh, but he is, he's wrapping up his ministry in Galilee. So far in Mark's gospel, everything has been carried out in, in Galilee thus far. And soon he's going to be leaving. There was one short episode where the 2,000 pigs get drowned. That's for a very brief time. He's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the, the ten cities, the Decapolis. Um, but otherwise, he's been there. And now he's taken a step away. Uh, some have suggested that Jesus takes a break from Galilee at this point because the opposition has reached a high point. Uh, it's not his time to be crucified yet or to be stoned. Uh, perhaps that's what's going on here. We see that he's got skirmishes with the Pharisees, and that is rationing up. We see prior to that, Herod is taking note of Jesus. He thinks that maybe Jesus has John the Baptist back from the dead. Uh, you know, perhaps Herod's going to try to kill John again. I, I don't know. It's possible that he's taking a step away from the conflict here. You know, the text doesn't explicitly tell us. What it does tell us is that he goes to the area of, uh, the area of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, these are Gentile cities. Uh, they are places with a less than pleasant history with Israel. You know, once upon a time, a king of Sidon gave a daughter, one of his daughters, to a king of Israel uh, in marriage. Does anybody remember who that famous or infamous queen was? Huh? Did I hear? Oh, sorry, I thought I heard. Well, her husband was Ahab, uh, and, and it was none other than Jezebel, you know? Uh, Jezebel was this famous gift from the king of Sidon, and uh, as you look at 1 Kings, you see that some gifts should be returned. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were called uh, here Syrophoenician cities. They were the Phoenicians who were in the Syrian area. Uh, the, the Phoenicians settled all around the Mediterranean, but this is a particular group of them. They were a seafaring people, and they're kind of generally called Canaanites in the Bible. They're, they're sort of clumped in with other Canaanites. So we see Jesus leaves Galilee, a mostly Jewish area, to go to a completely Gentile area. He goes uh, to what is modern-day Lebanon in that area. He leaves his ministry there in Galilee for a bit. 
Now, it says that he wants to be alone with his disciples. That's what verse 24 tells us. But as usual, solitude is very hard to come by for Jesus. A woman comes to Jesus and casts herself down at his feet. And now we're going to see the problem that comes to Jesus here. She begs him to heal her daughter. It says here that her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. So you've got what Jews would consider an unclean territory, and now you've got an unclean spirit. And, and what's Jesus' response to this woman going to be? You know, regularly, as we see in Mark's gospel, uh, he casts out demons. That There's no problem for him in casting out demons or healing. What's he going to do? His response might surprise us, and some have taken offense at what Jesus says here. Verse 27, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that might strike us as a little harsh. In response to this woman's begging, Jesus says that it's not appropriate to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. You know, not only is this an apparent no to her request, he pictures her as a dog in the process. Now, if you're called a dog in Jewish culture, that's not a compliment. Uh, dogs are seen as unclean animals. Now, we wouldn't really respect, we wouldn't expect that response from Jesus from what we've seen before. Um, some have even suggested that here Jesus is being racist. And I could not disagree more with that. Jesus could only be racist if God himself was racist, which of course isn't true. And I hope to demonstrate that here in a bit. But what exactly is going on here? To answer that, I want to look at one word from Jesus that's going to help us understand God's plan of salvation in human history. In verse 21, 27, that word is first. And in that, we will see a priority in Jesus' ministry. After we do that, we're going we're to zoom back out and we're going to look at this, what I would call a parable, after we see this priority. So let's look at the priority here. In response to what this woman asked, Jesus says, Let the children be fed first. Matthew's account of this story includes Jesus saying, I was, only sent, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's Matthew 15, 24 only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, these statements from Jesus reveal that he ministered according to the priorities that his father gave him. Yes, Jesus is the only Savior of the whole world. John, says in, John the Baptist says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the only Savior of the whole world, and yet God worked out his plan of salvation in a particular way. Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. He came from the Jewish people, and in his ministry, he targeted the Jewish people. Now, is that ethnic favoritism? Is Jesus being racist? No, I don't think he is at all. He is simply carrying out the ministry that he is given by his Father. And so to understand this, understand what Jesus is doing here and what God is doing uh, I think it's helpful to step out and, and look at what God is doing with humanity in the Bible. And so, I do this often, but I want to go right back to the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, God created the first people. He made Adam and Eve, and they were in a good relationship with him. In that sense, he, God was in a close fellowship relationship with the whole world, even if it was only two people. After the fall... 
humanity is plunged into sin. And as man begins to multiply, sin multiplies as well. And it gets bad pretty quickly. Steve reminded me uh, the other day that the human condition was so bad at the time of Noah that God says of mankind, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6.5. I mean, that's devastating. Listen to this. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. <laughs> I mean, that's bad. That, that is evil multiplying. Every single intention. Evil continually. God sends a flood. And it's a big flood. And the whole world is reduced back down to eight people. Four couples, Noah and his family. God demonstrates through that that by force, he can take sinners out of this world. But by using force, you can't take sin out of sinners. Again, in the flood, we see that God could take every single human being out of this world by force, but that force does not change the sinner's heart. That death penalty sentence doesn't remove sin from the heart. I think that's why anytime Christians have used the sword to make converts, it's always been a mistake. As we've seen in Mark 7, the heart of man is the problem. You can't scrape sin off with a sword. You can scrape sinners off the face of the earth, but you can't scrape sin off with a sword. Jesus, or here God shows us uh, that force doesn't change the human heart. You can mitigate evil by force, but that doesn't renew the heart. So what comes next in God's dealing with man? You know, Adam, we see God's in relationship with everybody, uh, both Adam and Eve. They fall. Noah is kind of almost like a restart. Goes to sin pretty quickly, and it gets bad after him. The next thing, of course, we see is the Tower of Babel, the scrambling of languages. But the next key event in redemption history is the call of Abram. That is a pivotal shift in God's working in this world. God has worked globally in a sense, but now he's focusing down to one family. He calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Joshua 24.2 says that Abraham and his family were idolaters. But God calls him out, and Abraham follows the voice of God. Through Abraham and his descendants, the Jewish people, God's going to reveal many things about himself. God starts revealing all sorts of things to Abraham's family. And throughout the Old Testament, we find revelation after revelation uh, from God to this family group. But let me be clear, God is not racist. Uh, God did not choose Israel because he thought that Israel was a better people, or prettier, or smarter, or more financially fit, none of those things. And Deuteronomy 7, and again in chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, God makes it clear that he did not choose Israel because of anything inherent in them. It's not because they were more numerous, he says. In fact, they were the smallest. It's not because they were more righteous, Deuteronomy 9 says, but because of the sinfulness of the Canaanites that he drove them out. Deuteronomy 7.8 says that God tells them that it's because he loved them. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. And he was being faithful to their fathers, as Deuteronomy 7.8. So God is not racist, and neither is Jesus. But even more... It was never God's intention just to reach one family. If you go all the way back to the call of Abraham, we see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. 
Uh, God tells to Abraham when he calls him out, he says, all the families of the earth, he says, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul's going to pick up on this in Galatians chapter 3 as he talks about the Gentiles being justified by faith. Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Paul says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and here's our passage from Genesis 12, In you shall all the, the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So God's intention was always to reach the Gentiles. He's going to do it through this one family. But through Abraham and his offspring, he's going to bless the whole world. And he does that, God does that by zeroing in on this one family. Abraham believes and is justified. And someday, Paul tells us here, the Gentiles are going to follow suit. But justification means nothing without the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it's at the cross that our sins are put on Jesus and his perfect life is attributed to us. When we believe in him, then his righteousness is accredited to us. Our sin has been placed on him on the cross and his righteousness is put to our account. And praise God for that amazing exchange. It is our only hope of salvation. You know, Abraham, he is saved by anticipation, you might say, and we're saved by application. He is saved by faith in Christ in anticipation of Jesus coming. We're saved by faith in Christ in application of what he's done. He looked forward to Christ. We look backward to Christ. Now, all of this is part of God's plan in bringing salvation to our world. We can't miss that he carried this out in a certain way. God uh, unfolded this plan in a particular way. He worked through the Jewish people and he brought the Savior of the world through the Jews. Again, Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. And he would be anointed not only to save the Jews, uh, but to save people from all over the world. We've got to see in his earthly ministry, he was committed to a priority. He was called to the Jews. And we even see that reflected. Buster shared this morning from Romans 1, 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. There's a priority in the way that God worked, uh, that, that's just according to the plan that he worked. It's not as if he had favored uh, a people in a racist kind of way. He called out Israel, and he did a work in Israel and through Israel, and Jesus is reflecting that in his earthly ministry. We've got to get that in our minds, uh, even when people say, well, Jesus is just being racist here. That, that's a response that we can say, well, no, he's not. Uh, God is free to work how he pleases, and this is how he's worked, and it's not about uh, some sort of racism in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is fulfilling the ministry given to him. And at this place in Mark chapter 7, that mission is not complete yet. He's in the middle of it. Uh, and so as he encounters this Gentile woman who's begging for help, we see a reflection of this priority. It is the children that will be fed first. But, as we see here in this passage and in the next few to come, just because Jesus' priority is the Jewish people, that doesn't mean that only the Jewish people receive a blessing. In fact, he will minister to Gentiles here and, and farther on. But at first he does rebuff her request. He, he gives essentially a no. And I think that leads us then into the parable here that he says. Now, what he says here about the, the dog and the, 
the food here, uh, I think it's something of a parable, it's something like a sawed-off shotgun of parables. It's short, but it packs a punch. Now, I call this a parable, although neither Jesus nor his disciples nor even Mark calls it a parable here. I may be wrong in that, but in Mark's gospel, there are several places where there are short parables, uh, short pictures that are called parables. We see that back in verse 16, or verse 15. Uh, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17, they ask him about the parable. So there's a very short picture, but it's a parable. I, I think this is something like that. I think there is uh, a parable here. Uh, I believe in this interaction, Jesus is casting himself, the Jews, and this woman in a parable. He, or as well God, he is God, is the one giving the food, the Jews are the children, and this woman is among the dogs. In telling this parable, Jesus makes clear that this, uh, to this woman that she is not of the chosen people of God. She's not of Israel. And that's where the priority in Jesus' ministry lay. And if this is a parable, then like with all parables, I believe that Jesus is testing this woman. How is she going to respond to that? How, how is she going to take this? Now, Jesus knows what's in her heart. Uh, but I think here he's exposing her heart to herself, to the disciples, and to us. And how does she respond? This is the striking thing in Mark's gospel. Here is this Syrophoenician, this Gentile. She gets the parable. She understands it. Even more than that, she accepts the terms of the parable. And then she responds in faith in light of the parable. That's amazing. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew records that Jesus commends her for her great faith. And she does have a great faith, as we see in this account as well. She accepts that she may be an outsider. Yes, she's in that category. But she continues to press for blessings from Jesus. She responds that even the little dogs eat the children's crumbs that fall from the table. This woman not only accepts the hard terms of Jesus' parable, but she presses on in faith to seek deliverance for her daughter. Now that takes great humility and great faith. I mean, it's funny, in Mark's gospel, so often the disciples don't even get the parable. You know, they, they ask later, now what exactly did you mean, Jesus? Uh, they often don't even get it. Uh, we see in Matthew 21 that the Pharisees understand a parable of Jesus, and they hate him for it. They want to kill him all the more for it. Uh, but here, she not only understands the parable, but she responds in faith. And Jesus responds by telling her that her daughter is taken care of. The demon has left her. Jesus rewards her determined faith with the healing that she's looking for. She returns home. She finds her daughter free of this unclean spirit. As we wrap up in our passage, uh, there are, are three important lessons I think we should take away from this. Uh, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to God. Uh, this woman doesn't try to change what can't be changed. She is a Canaanite. She doesn't try to change that. She simply comes to Jesus with her needs, and he meets those needs. In this parable, she plays the part of the outsider, and yet she presses on for faith in Jesus. The Bible portrays us as worse than dogs. You know, she might be in an unfavorable light being casted as a dog here. The Bible says far harsher words about us. The Bible says far harsher words about the human condition than this. Are we willing to accept the fact that the Bible calls every human being sinners. So many people refuse to accept Jesus 
and his salvation because they won't ever bend the knee and accept what God says about them. They will not accept the fact that they're sinners. We find so many ways to justify our hearts, to justify our motives. Uh, people don't want to accept that. And yet, uh, the Bible invites us to accept God's assessment of us and our human condition and then to trust in Jesus for deliverance from it. My encouragement to you is that if you haven't, accept what God says about you and your sin and trust in him. Next, as we see what this passage is telling us, uh, another thing it should instruct us, especially as we think about evangelism, is that nobody is beyond the reach of God. Uh, nobody's beyond God's reach. Now, I'm telling you, this lady fit the bill of an outsider. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a Canaanite. She's from a people group that opposed Israel. It says here as well that she was a Greek. Now, in saying that she's Greek, it doesn't mean she was ethnically Greek from the island or from the peninsula where Greece is at. Um, rather, she had accepted the Greek influence around her. After Alexander the Great, Alexander Greekifies everything. And the only people who really resist that is Israel. The, the faithful Jews, they don't take on Jewish cust or Greek customs. So not only is she a, a Gentile, but she's accepted this Greek influence on her life. And further, she's a woman. Maybe she's even a widow. You know, she's not in a place of power in this day. Now, I would imagine the disciples would have expected Jesus just to send her away, and that would be that. Uh, they might have even thought, get her out of here. Uh, but she believes in Jesus, and he does accept her and grant her request. As his disciples today, we shouldn't assume that anybody is beyond the reach of God. As we share the gospel, we should go with the confidence that he can reach anybody. There may be people who today are bitter enemies to us, maybe bitter enemies to the cross of Christ, and someday they might be eating potluck with us. Do we have categories for that? Do we have categories that God could really reach anybody? We want to have a category like that, uh, we see that reflected in this passage here. Last point of application here. If you believe, if you are trusting in Christ, know that God receives you. The last thing I want to encourage us from this is for anybody who might struggle with accepting God's acceptance of them. Again, this lady is about the last person on earth who could expect help from Jesus. Uh, but Jesus has come to her town and she has gone to him in faith. He has told her the hard truth, and she presses on still. And Jesus accepts her. For the struggling heart, this is a lesson for us. Even she could be accepted by Jesus. Is it impossible that God could accept me as well? Did she have a right to be helped? No. Do any of us have a right to be helped by Jesus? No. But it's never about our right in salvation anyways. God's salvation is always free of our deserving or rights. Our salvation rests on God and his mercy, not our ability to say the sinner's prayer precisely rightly or earnestly enough. Uh, you know, as a young believer, I used to be eaten up by questions like, did I believe rightly? Uh, did I believe genuinely? Is my faith a sham? I think I believe, but do I really believe? Uh, I was focused on myself. But, as we see the scriptures, God calls us to look up to him, to put our trust in him. 
If you're struggling, uh, there's some questions I, I have for you. Do you believe in the Jesus revealed in this book? Next, do you believe that you have no hope of saving yourself? Do you believe that Jesus died in the place of sinners? Do you believe that he is the only means of saving you? If you believe those things, then my encouragement is to put your confidence in God's faithfulness and not in yourself. God is no liar. He is faithful to what he's promised. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to do it. He is just in doing that. He has the right to do it and he will forgive us. We must look to him alone and not ourselves. So all these points bring us back to our main point, the call to believe on Jesus with the confidence that anybody who seeks him will be received. Well, as the men prepare for communion and Maggie comes to play, we'll go to prayer together.